Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy, who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal organizations. I've also had the good luck to live outside the U.S. for a while, which puts me, I think, in a good position to reflect, for my American audience, on some events of note going on outside the country. Speaking of things outside the United States, the Middle East. In the last several days, it was announced that the leaders of Israel and the United Arab Emirates, which I'm henceforth going to refer to as just the UAE, guided along by the American government, have come to an agreement. That agreement does a couple of important things. It normalizes relations between those two countries, which is a bigger deal than it sounds like, since in this case, normalization literally means that the UAE will, for the first time, publicly acknowledge that Israel has a right to exist. It would also halt plans made by Israel's terrible, in my opinion, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to annex big parts or even all of the West Bank, something which would effectively end hopes for a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine question. Hopes that have already been on life support for at least a decade given Netanyahu's corruption and intransigence, and the fact that since 2006 the Palestinian leadership has been divided between the fairly corrupt Palestinian Authority, which has itself soured on negotiations, and a straight-up terrorist organization, Hamas. Now, I never intended for this to be a breaking news podcast. Okay, I guess breaking not exactly since it was like two days ago, but close enough. I also admit to having generally avoided putting myself out there publicly on the Arab-Israeli conflict, since the subject is a minefield where nuance is rewarded by having almost everyone yell at you, something that only seems to be getting worse. Thank you, Twitter. But my friend and mentor, Professor Latham, my guest on the last episode, has numerous times taught a class at my alma mater, McAllister College, focusing on security policy in the Middle East, twice, in fact, with me serving as the teaching assistant. Since we just recorded an episode about Russian aggression against the West and some associated topics, we decided to sit down, or rather hop back on Zoom, to share our reactions to the big news out of the Middle East. Professor, welcome back. It's great to have you, and um, I guess a little bit sooner than we expected. So, in the two-ish days since we talked, Biden made his BP pick. Personal point of privilege, I guess, sadly, he hadn't gotten around to listening to my previous episode where I made the case for Susan Rice. If any of my listeners haven't yet, by the way, go check it out. It's a great episode if I do say so myself. I touch on the history of the Democratic Party and its approach to foreign policy. But to be fair, Harris has been doing very, very well since the rollout, and I'm sure she'll be a, a great vice president. Also, Israel and the UAE have pulled this rabbit out of a hat. Or as Trump will inevitably put it, I and my brilliant and tremendously qualified son-in-law who definitely isn't here just because he's married to the one of my children I appear to actually care about, has single-handedly ended all conflict, all conflict in the Middle East. I am the bigliest dealmaker in the history of deals, maybe ever, folks, perhaps, perhaps ever in history. I demand one million Nobel Prizes and unlimited nuggets from Abu Dhabi fried chicken. Okay, sorry, I went on there a little longer than planned. Uh, since I've now tortured all of you uh, with my Trump impression, um, let's start with the president. How much credit do you uh, think that Trump personally deserves for this? Well, I, I don't know exactly uh, what went on in that White House. Um, I will give a president a great deal of credit. I will give President Barack Obama a great deal of credit. Um, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the so-called uh, Iran deal, uh, was the catalyst for all of this. It uh, has occasioned a reshuffling of the deck, as it were, in the Middle East. 
And so that the situation, I think, when you say Middle East to most Americans, I, I think they still think Israel versus the Arabs or Israel versus the Palestinians. And that's no longer the case. Um, in Riyadh and other regional capitals, including uh, Israel's, that deal scared the daylights out of people. They thought there was being a, a reorientation of American policy. They thought that maybe they couldn't count on the U.S. And so we have an alliance, an informal, an entente cordiale, as it were, uh, between, on the one hand, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, including the UAE, um, and Israel and Jordan. Now, that would have been unthinkable seven years ago, eight years ago, but it's the reality on the ground today. And we see that Entente Cordiale, which is an informal alliance, beginning to solidify or crystallize this recognition of the state of Israel by the UAE, which has been at a state of war effectively with Israel since 1971 when it gained independence, is just the beginning of the formalization of this reorientation. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw other uh, Gulf Cooperation Council states, maybe even KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, joins, uh, join, uh, follow that, this path uh, pretty soon. So the Trumps, I have no idea. I can't imagine that they had much to do with it. Um, I think there are tectonic shifts taking place, and that's where the real credit lies. Mm -hmm. So this seems to be more of a recognition of things going on in the Middle East in the absence of the United States than it does um, a, a deal initiated and cemented with American leadership. I think that's right. I think, as I said, tectonic shifts, uh, regional capitals trying to figure out how to counterbalance Iran, which is the big concern of all of the of Israel and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, uh, the Gulf states, etc. In the absence of American leadership under Trump, I would suggest, and in the presence of the wrong kind of leadership from their perspective during the Obama administration. Okay. So in terms of what's in the deal, I, I sort of touched on it in my introduction, but is there anything that I missed? Is there any more detail we should go into in terms of what's in it from, from what we know so far? Well, it's a formal recognition of the right of Israel to exist, um, exchange of ambassadors, which is no small thing. Uh, I detect Trump's fingerprints on the promise of the UAE to invest lots of money in a COVID vaccine that being uh -huh. developed in Israel. Um, and what do you mean? The Russians already have one. We're all set. Yeah, if you want to be the first in line in North America to take that vaccine, you feel free. You're not in North America. But, uh, no, I think I'll wait for the Israeli one or the American one or the British one or the Canadian one or just about any one. A less polonium-based vaccine. Uh, yes, we, yeah. yes. Without yeah. going any further down that rabbit hole, yes. Yes. <laughs> so basically we have an exchange of ambassadors, normalization of relations, and then this halt to the annexation which I think well, is, a, is a that's the flip side. And that's, that's an interesting piece because uh, Bibi, your friend, uh, Netanyahu, um, <laughs> uh, made that promise uh, in an election, which is hotly contested. And it was part of his attempt to shore up his, his right flank, as it were. He needed the settler community and the Orthodox community to support him. And he promised, he made an unprecedented promise in the heat of an election campaign to annex chunks of, or maybe even all of, uh, the occupied territories, the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
But if I were to take domestic politics out of it, I would think he was brilliant. I mean, it was an exercise in escalate to de-escalate. Mm -hmm. You make the craziest threat conceivable uh, in the region um, to your Arab uh, friends, neighbors. Um, and then you say, well, we won't do it if, and the, the, the grand prize, of course, is to have the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia extend the same recognition. Yeah. I think that's around the corner, but let's start with the UAE and see what happens. Yeah. I don't, I, there's no doubt that Netanyahu is a very cagey character and he's geopolitically very cagey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, I think it's a fortuitous convergence of a number of things having to do with domestic policy, opportunities opening up on the geopolitical stage, uh, the vacuum created by a lack of real American leadership, the catalytic move though of, of shifting the embassy to Jerusalem. I think that shook things up a little bit. Mm. And there was no reaction in the Arab street, the much vaunted Arab street. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states did, did little more than wag their fingers for about two seconds. Yeah. Um, well, they, they, they are, they're certainly reaping other rewards from the Trump presidency, like, you know, an American government that looks at the other direction while they saw up journalists in their embassies. So yes, they, yes. You know. I'm, not, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that would be any different under any American president. Since 1948, the U.S. has looked the other way more often than it has when Israel has uh, bent or broken the rules. Israel, uh, sure. No, no, I'm, I'm talking about the Saudis. And Saudi, sorry, yes. Yeah. Well, them too. Yeah. Um, everybody wins here, except, of course, for the Palestinians. Right. So, so I was going to say, tempted though I am to go down the rabbit hole of 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 noting how this pretty clearly benefits Netanyahu domestically, because he is in extremely hot water, having all of his corruption appears to have finally caught up to him, uh, and then, you know, arguably this could be beneficial to to Trump in terms of domestic politics, but I, I think that probably with his mishandling of the coronavirus, this won't make much of a difference. Tempted though I am to go down both of those rabbit holes of domestic politics, I want to talk a little bit about the reactions in other places. So you mentioned a couple so far, um, uh, you mentioned a couple of other Arab states, for example. Um, I saw a couple of, of uh, statements from several of them that actually seemed quite positive. Yeah, yeah, there have been um, very sort of positive noises from the usual suspects. Uh, I think the more interesting sort of noises, though, are the negative noises and what they tell us, right? I was, I was going to say, in, in terms of those things, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see the positive reactions from a couple of different European countries, which have, have had a complicated relationship with the Israelis, or, or I guess maybe that has to do more with the, 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 the base level than the leadership. Um, I was pleasantly surprised also to see the positive reactions from the UN, which traditionally has also had a, let's say, complicated, to, to skip over that longer uh, conversation about the UN's relationship with Israel, uh, complicated relationship. And then the positive reactions from a couple of different Arab states seems, seemed good. But you mentioned a couple of the negative reactions. I wasn't surprised at all to see the Iranians uh, having a, a negative reaction to this, because anything that appears good for either the UAE or Israel is probably bad for them from their perspective. But what surprised me more was the Turks. Right. And, you know, there is this, uh, what we used to call this geopolitical great game taking place in the region. And it really is a Cold War, sometimes hot on the margins between Iran on the one hand and the Saudi-Israeli axis on the other. And the Turks play an interesting role in that. They're sort of an uh, sort of offshore balancer, not quite offshore if you look at your map. Um, say, not, have, not if you're a Kurd in northern Syria, they're not. 
no, they're, they're right next door and you wish they weren't. Um, but they have been playing this kind of neo-Ottoman game as well. They're, the Turks are looking to extend and expand their influence in the region. And in fact, they have um, reached out to the Qataris. Now, the Qataris have a, have a strange relationship with Iran. Uh, we don't need to go into the details, although we can. Save but it for another one. They've been more pro-Iranian than the rest of the Gulf Cooperation Council yeah. states, so like the UAE. And this has gotten them into some hot water. In fact, they were um, uh, quarantined, I think is the <laughs> antiseptic term that we should use by, by sure. Saudi Arabia and the other GCC states. And Turkey reached out to them in that context. So I think Turkey, I know Turkey, sees the, the Qataris as a natural sort of wedge um, that could be useful in terms of splitting up or weakening the Gulf Cooperation Council. Mm -hmm. So they're not likely, when you factor all that into the equation, to see this development as positive, even though they, the Turks, have been improving their relationship with Israel as well. There was a, a long period of time where they were on good relations. The Israeli Air Force used to train in Turkey. Yeah. And then after Erdogan came to power, things went south pretty quickly for a variety of reasons. And in the last couple of years, they've been on the mend um, uh, as it were. Um, so it's a very complicated game that's being played. Uh, some things are very predictable. Iran, which portrays itself yeah. as the guardian of all the oppressed Muslims in the universe, obviously was not going to like this because it harms the Palestinians. But the Turks, are, that's an interesting case. You, you, you fixed on something pretty important pretty quickly there. Speaking of the Palestinians, this is, I think, one of the biggest questions out of this. Does this deal actually screw the Palestinians? Because the response from uh, the response from the Iranians would indicate that they certainly think so, although I think that they would have said that in almost any context because they like to maintain their patrons. The response from the PA and Hamas would certainly indicate that they think so. I'm, I'm skeptical that it actually does in the long term, but I'm, I'm curious what your take on that is. Well, my take is that I was touched, first of all, by your very nostalgic reference to the possibility of a two-state solution. Uh, there's, no there's no such thing. It's been dead for a long time. Um, so I was going to say, this, this, does, this does certainly seem to indicate that, that at least a couple of the Arab states that have traditionally uh, been willing to put appearance of support for the Palestinians ahead of their own interests may be less interested in doing so. They're, they're not, they never have, by the way, but they have maintained. No, but they, they've appeared to. They've, they've, they've maintained, maintained the veneer. They are the champions of the Palestinian people. Um, but post-JCPOA, they have looked around and said, What's more important to us, mouthing bromides and platitudes about the Palestinians or getting Israel in our camp to, to uh, hold back Iranian influence? Um, and they've made their decision. And this agreement with the UAE is very much a manifestation of that. Mm -hmm. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the Palestinians bring from a Saudi perspective or a UAE perspective exactly nothing to the table. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I, I, um, that maybe I'm the hopelessly naive one of the two of us. I have not sold out on, or, or, or sorry, sold out too, too loaded a term. I have not given up on the notion of a two-state solution. But I think, I mean, that, that may be partially just because I, I can't imagine the alternative. Uh, I mean, like a, an, an actual Israeli annexation of that territory would be a disaster. Uh, and a, an actual democratic one-state solution is unthinkable for a whole bunch of very obvious reasons that maybe can be saved for a, for a, a, a different episode or, or, or someone else can talk about it since I said in the intro, minefield. Um, 
but I, I, I see the reaction to this coming from people who say that this, this, this deal is in some way a betrayal of the Palestinians. My take on this is that if, is that whether or not this is a betrayal of, of Palestinian interests has to do with how you frame Palestinian interests. If you think of Palestinian interests as being the eventual goal that Israel and implicitly all of the Jewish people who live there simply disappear in some way, then yeah, this screws the Palestinians. But if, you've, uh, if you frame support for the Palestinians as hoping to establish an independent, potentially maybe democratic Palestinian state next to Israel based at least roughly on the pre-1967 borders, in other words, the, the vaunted, possibly dead, hopefully not two-state solution, I don't think this screws the Palestinians. Um, because for a number of reasons that I'll get into, but for one thing, I think the, the current leadership of Palestine or, or the Palestinians, pardon me, uh, appears to believe in the first of those two visions, unfortunately. I mean, Hamas admits that outright. This is an organization that, I mean, whose charter explicitly calls for a straight up genocide, uh, you know, of the Jewish people. And although the Palestinian authority doesn't express the same really pretty openly outrageous goals as Hamas, uh, you know, the, at least since they threw out Salam Fayyad 10 years ago, again, another episode, um, they, they, haven't, they, they don't seem to have been interested in, in building a viable state. I mean, since, since Salam Fayyad used to be prime minister and, and took some actual steps to develop the infrastructure to become a state, getting rid of him and replacing him with nobody who, who did anything to in any way build a state, to me indicates not being interested in actually building one. Although to be fair, it's not like they have a partner in Netanyahu who, besides being almost comically corrupt and pretty evidently racist as evidenced by the, the not this election, but the previous one where he came straight out and said, tons of Arabs are coming to vote in order to mobilize the base. Uh, you know, I guess he doesn't, doesn't have the political courage to negotiate with the Palestinians either. I can easily blame both sides for this, but, but, but the bottom line, pardon me to, 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 to get back to the other point, if, if you view Palestinian interests as being having an independent state and not as you know getting rid of all of the Jewish people who live in Israel, I I am skeptical that this this is actually as bad for the Palestinians as as certainly the Iranians are saying. It's neither a move in, in a in a positive direction or a negative direction. I think with respect to the Palestinians, it's it's taken one ineffective minor cheerleader off the sidelines for them, and that's it. Um, you know, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and, and Jordan and Egypt have signaled very, very clearly that their concern over Iran with its export of its uh, revolution and its support for um, Islamists uh, that are opposed to the kingdom and Egypt, etc., that trumps, if you'll pardon my use of that word, that trumps any concern for the Palestinians. Now, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia still nominally is in support of the peace, um, uh, the peace plan that it put forward several years ago, which did call for a two-state solution. But you know, you, you show me your budget, I'll tell you what your priorities are. You show yeah. me your foreign policy, I'll tell you what your priorities are. And their priorities are not the Palestinians. So I think this doesn't affect really the, the material prospects of the Palestinian people a whit. Um, but they've, they've also, got, they've got bigger problems than whether the UAE recognizes Israel or not. I, I find myself wondering, and, and again, this, this might also be naive. My, my initial reaction to this was that although, although the current leadership of both the PA and Hamas are completely intransigent, and, and I find myself wondering if, if it really might just require this generation of leadership of the Palestinians to, you know, age out 
in order for any progress to be made. Um, a part of you reacting to this by uh, reacted to this by saying, "Okay, here is an additional um, Sunni Gulf Arab state recognizing Israel's right to exist, which will involve ambassadors. It will involve diplomacy, actually out in the open." Mm -hmm. Isn't it possible that the more states actually, the, the less Israel feels like every Arab state is attempting to wipe them off the map, the more likely they are to actually listen to the concerns these states might at some point voice on behalf of the Palestinians in the context of potentially establishing some sort of state? I think all, all of, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, all of which is to say, is it possible that having another broker at the table that isn't the United States, or, or in addition to the United States, in terms of some potential future, maybe Camp David Accord with a competent president, that it might be helpful that some of these Gulf Arab states are willing to actually sit in the same room as the Israelis. There's two things there. There's that. There's the multiple uh, people at the table, multiple parties at the table. But if you're one of Israel's Arab neighbors, the scariest thing in the world is for the Israelis to feel backed into a corner and threatened because they do tend to lash out. They and do. they do tend to lash out quite effectively. Yes. Um, and so to the extent that you can reassure Israel that it is not facing an existential threat in terms of all of its Arab neighbors being hell-bent on the destruction of the state of Israel and pushing all the Jews who arrived after 1948 out of their homes. And, um, and let's they, be realistic, the other ones too. And the other ones too, that's right. Yeah. There may Sorry, be some. I mean, we, we've seen what happened in all of the other Arab states after 1948. I, I don't imagine that the ones that happened to be there before would get some kind of exemption. I think there were roughly the same number of Jews displaced as there were Palestinians. Yeah, slightly more, actually. Yes, well, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no need to count at this point. I, I think that ship has sailed. Um, but we don't hear about them. Um, they were assimilated into Israel, into, into the United States, Canada, Australia, and elsewhere. Um, um, they weren't given special status by the United Nations and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, to be fair, so, they, they, they did, did get a state out of it and the Palestinians haven't yet, but... Well, yeah, they're, well, that, that certainly is another um, podcast. Yes, yes, yeah, no time uh, for that. But in terms of, of, of Israel's willingness to sit down and do a deal, um, I think in Israel, which is secure, which is not feeling threatened, you know, if the BDS movement would just go away now, um, yeah which is just the most outrageous movement I've ever in modern times encountered. Um, I, I think it, not Netanyahu, no. No, I wouldn't not, imagine. You know, none of the current political leadership, but I can see a point in the, in the not too distant future when, as you say, these on both sides, the current leadership ages out. Yeah. Have a new, uh, on the Palestinian side, uh, leadership that is resigned to the reality. Israel's not going away. The best that we can hope for is a state of our own, an almost normal state. It will never be a normal state. Yeah. It won't be like Canada and the U.S., that's for sure. No, but then um, neither is Israel. No, and then Israel is, um, you know, the Israeli leadership comes to the recognition that, okay, we have peace, um, we are secure, and we can do this deal with the Palestinians. Now, there's all kinds of, as you know, fierce internal domestic politics yeah. in Israel around settlements and whatnot. Yeah. But you know, because we, we've talked about it in courses and whatnot, there's a, there's a deal to be done there as well in terms of annexing certain parts of the West Bank and exchanging that territory. And I mean, you know, there is a deal to be done. If Israelis feel secure and Palestinians feel that the, that deal is the only deal, 
yeah. I, I find myself thinking that at some point when, when as we said, the current leadership ages out, that um, a couple of the impediments to a deal are Israel's sense of insecurity, the lack of involvement that in any way appears credible to the Israelis of other Arab states, which I think will probably start to change with, with this and if other Arab states recognize Israel having a right to exist. And I think the hope among some Palestinians that, that there could actually be a deal that at some point involves making Israel go away, which is not, I think, at, that, at this point going to happen. So my hope is that with a combination of more involvement from the Sunni Gulf Arab states in a way that appears to be you know, more of a good faith involvement toward actually making a deal rather than just sitting on the side and yelling things about Israel to please the street. A recognition on behalf of the people who matter in Palestine that, that no, there will not come a situation where these states will try 1948 again. Uh, and um, a willingness in Israel, uh, I already mentioned Israel not feeling threatened and thus a willingness to negotiate more seriously. And then, uh, you know, serious, competent, experienced um, leadership from a United States president who understands, who, whose reaction to this sort of thing wouldn't be, nobody could possibly have known that the Middle East was so complicated. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a second Biden term or possibly further off than that. Uh, but I don't know, my, my instinct to this is actually to be relatively hopeful. As we, as we sort of start to wrap up here, because I, you know, I recognize um, we're just sort of reacting to this and there will be more news coming out about it. I think the official deal isn't actually getting signed until September. Um, do you have any final thoughts on, on what this means for the region more broadly or, or for, for any of the players we've mentioned? And, like, is this that big of a deal? I think, I think it is reflective of really big, important changes that have been unfolding for five, six, seven years. And for most people outside the region or non-specialists, this is the first indication that that, that, that world has changed. Yeah. But that world has changed, and this is the fruit of that change, and I think there'll be more to come. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I share that opinion, and I'm, I'm actually weirdly optimistic about it a feeling I've not had about the Middle East for a very, very long time. So I will continue to hope that a democratic president will put us back into the Iran deal and then potentially scare other Gulf states into doing the same thing that the UAE just did. Yeah, well, I, I think, I don't know what the politics are internally in some of those countries, but... No. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much it matters, realistically. It's not like any of them are real democracies. No, and the Arab Street's the most overblown thing ever. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if you move the embassy, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and nobody comes out to protest, yeah. um, that tells you how powerful or not um, that street actually is. Yeah, it, it seems that maybe, maybe the people in that region have started to move on in the same way that the leadership did a while ago. I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of people just want to get on with getting on and, and get on with their lives. And um, there's not much in it. As, as prosperity, and if and as prosperity in the region grows, I think there'll be less need to distract the people uh, with these kind of nationalist projects, you know, appeal to Arab nationalism or Arab identity, um, which we know has been the case in the past in, in Egypt in particular, but elsewhere as well. Um, and all, all the conditions, all the building blocks could fall in place. And then I think American leadership will matter because guess what? American leadership always matters. It's not gonna be the PRC that leads this. Yeah. I'm not gonna be Russia that leads this. Well, let's hope this November we get some actual American leadership. 
Thank you so much for joining me again, Professor. Like this, um, this was really interesting, and I, I appreciate your time. Um, I guess we'll have to see uh, what other breaking news comes up so that we can hop back on Zoom in the future. Right. Delighted to do it. All right. Thank you. That's all for this episode of OK Talks. I'd like to thank Professor Latham for joining me again on such short notice, and all of you for listening. I hope our conversation was interesting and helped create context to better understand this unfolding situation in the Middle East. If you did, in fact, enjoy our conversation and the previous episodes, please do me a favor and hit that subscribe button so you'll be able to see future episodes. It is no commitment at all, I promise. It won't result in a tidal wave of emails like the one caused by that online petition you clicked on nine months ago or something. If you're feeling especially charitable, please feel free to leave a review or share it. These things really are very helpful. In any case, until the next episode, thanks for listening.